name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life. I, I, our gift of our life from you and um, for the presence, your presence through this day. I'm going to repeat a prayer I think I've said to you before. Um, it's, a, it's a prayer I usually say each morning. Um, um, because I believe um, we shouldn't forget that our God is a Trinitarian God. Um, um, so I'm going to repeat it here, except I'm going to include everybody instead of just um, speaking of myself or Suzanne. Um, Father, um, help each one of the women here to become the daughter you've given them to be. Help each one of the men um, to be the sons you've given them to be. Christ, at the very end, you, um, you called us friends, um, not servants, but friends, and asked us to love as you do. Help each one of us to be your friends, um, to love the way you do. Holy Spirit, you are a gift. Um, you do things without calling attention to yourself. Help each of us to be a gift in our lives. Um, help us to offer ourselves freely whatever it is we're doing, whatever hardships that asks of us. Um, help us to do this, please, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Ask a blessing on um, Connie's mother-in-law, Jackie. Um, be with her. It sounds like you already are. Um, Continue to be with her. Um, surround her with your protection. Keep her spirits good. Um, let the radiation um, be successful. Most of all, let, sounds like she does it already, but let everything that she's doing strengthen her and her faith. I ask for a special blessing for our son Thomas. Um, I'd like to ask everybody's prayers here for him and for Suzanne and me. Um, help us to do your will in everything that we do, particularly when it's not easy. And in all things that we do, um, help us to bring you to the world, to risk that, particularly where you're not wanted. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord, amen. Can you all turn to Song for Simeon? This belongs to a group of poems by Eliot I think they're called the aerial poems. They were written after the two poems that I've mentioned before, J. Alfred Prufrock and um, The Wasteland, which were dark, dark poems. And they, lots of people treat those poems as um, markers for modernity, that Eliot um, made us aware through those poems of something peculiarly modern. The Wasteland is called a Wasteland because it's dealing with, it's describing the sterility of the modern world. Um, we've lost ourselves, um, our bearings, um, who we are. We've turned away from God. It's a post-Christian world. And those two poems speak so directly to those experiences. The, love, the title, Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, if, if you know anything about lyrics from what we've done together, you know that most lyrics are about love. It's an expression of love on the part of the poet. So think about the irony of that title, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. J. Alfred Prufrock in itself sounds priggish, because he is a little bit, you know. But it's called a love song, and yet it's infernal. It's Prufrock inviting us to go on to a journey into what is a, his hell. He doesn't see it that way, because people in hell, 
don't see. They don't even know what they don't know. And that's the condition of hell. So proof rock is a journey into that. The wasteland is about the modern wasteland. But this group of poems came later as, as Eliot's um, moving towards his conversion and all that will happen afterwards. Um, it's during this period that he writes Murder in the Cathedral. It's the work we're doing, it, we're just finishing up at um, St. Francis. It's an extraordinary work. It's about a martyr. It's, it's about St. Thomas Becket's martyrdom. So in that very short play, we enter into St. Thomas Becket's struggle with himself, the temptations he faces, and the temptations that the world presents him with um, on the eve of his martyrdom. So it's deeply, it's, it's just profound. Um, and um, Marina, as you saw last week, and, and Song for Simeon, belong to that same period. Eliot's moving towards a conversion. It will eventually lead him to write Ash Wednesday, which will commemorate his conversion, and the, the um, four quartets, which I think are the, the most beautiful poems of the, of the 20th century, and among the hardest. If we stay together long enough, we'll do them. Um, not easy, but they're extraordinary. Um, you know from last week that in Marina, Eliot's uh, speaking from the point of view of a father who's on a journey, who's had an experience of some transcendent order, and he's aware of that when he looks at his daughter. So it opens with the description of what land is this, you know, where, where are we? And then it has those four descriptions of um, hell. Um, the, the, the dog tooth, um, the beauty of the honeybee, you know, things. It was four different ways of going wrong in our world through violence or complacency or egotism. And, and then it returns to this, these descriptions that show something very familiar and strange. So the, the, the poem's hard. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't give us a narrative. We don't know where we are. It opens on these questions and we know we don't know where we are. That's part of the point. The whole point of the poem, if you remember, remember um, the, the title is taken from the name of the daughter in the play Pericles, because Pericles loses his wife and his daughter and he spends his life um, in exile from his home. And then uh, towards the end of his life, he discovers that his daughter and wife are alive. And he has that rare moment, he experiences the music of the spheres, it's God, the harmony of God's, the beauty and order and harmony of God's creation. And he rests. It's, imagine that kind of rest, the, the serenity the, the, and the depth of it. Um, and if you remember Marina, the, the epigram was taken from um, Seneca's plays on Hercules. And it's the lines that Hercules expresses when he wakes up and discovers he's killed his children and his wife. So Eliot sets that um, Seneca play, that line from his play, off against Pericles. Because when Pericles wakes up, he comes out of this transcendent experience and looks at his daughter. And he's in that in-between state in which something very familiar is mixed with something very strange and in some ways frightening. It's like anybody going through a conversion you, you, you are, you, you're aware that you're standing in an in-between place. You're surrounded by things that are familiar with you, and yet you know there's something more there, okay? That was the Marina poem. And I think I asked that question last week, didn't I? I hope I did. I said, um, God, sorry. Um, 
I, I think I asked it, didn't I, when I said, when you take the Eucharist, where are you? Didn't I ask that of you? Yeah. I don't know of any better way to express it than that. Um, we believe that when we take the Eucharist, we're taking Christ actually into us. If that's so, if that's so, that's our belief. The, the fundamentalist world doesn't believe that. The secular world doesn't believe it. If that's so and Christ is within us, um, then we're in his kingdom. So when we take the Eucharist and we walk outside of church and we're going through the halls in the parking lot to a car, where are we? If the Eucharist means what it should mean, we should be in that in-between state. I mean, we should, be know, we should know we're going to our car and we're going to go home in it, everything will be familiar, but are we carrying any sense that we're with Christ in his kingdom? Meant to, to share his sorrows because... We're asked to crucify ourselves to the world to, you know, to put ourselves away and still feel the joy of being with him. That's the central paradox, by the way, of um, Murder in the Cathedral. It's what um, St. Thomas, if, if you read that play with, uh, by T.S. Eliot, you'd find um, on his homily on Christmas Day, he says, every day of the year, every day of the year, when we celebrate Mass, we feel the sorrow because when we celebrate Mass, we're entering into Christ's crucifixion. There's a sorrow. He died. On Christmas Day, we celebrate his birth. So it's the one day of the year in which we are asked to feel sorrow in its, to its extreme and joy to its extreme. We're meant to pull both of those emotions together. That's our faith. That's the paradox, That's the paradox at the center of our faith. So all of these poems, the Marina poem, um, even, even Anthony and Cleopatra, the play, have been dealing with these strange experiences here on earth that make us aware that something else is going on. Okay? Is that, I hope that's clear. That's what we've been doing. Okay, now, you all know, you all know who Simeon is, right? If you look on the back, I'll just pick a couple of lines out because I took the passages. Remember, Simeon, um, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, um, it's revealed to him that he would not die until he saw his Savior. And we know that the Jews had been waiting for their Savior forever. And Simeon, I mean, this is, so, this is so extraordinary. This one man is picked out by the Spirit to know that he won't die until he sees him. So it's, it's just one more piece of evidence that the, the Christ, the Savior that everybody's been waiting for is here. Um, he came by the Spirit into the temple. The parents bring Christ to present him. He takes him in his arms and blessing him, he says, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to the Gentiles, the glory of thy people, Israel. Joseph and his mother marveled at those things. How could they? This is extraordinary. I mean, a miracle is taking place right now. He knows this is God. Um, Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary, his mother, behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. People are going to be exposed. They're going to find out who they are. Um, if we were living then, we would find out a lot about who we are. We'd either see that this is the Christ we've been waiting for or we would deny him. 
And remember, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many. So the effect that he's going to produce is going to be mixed. It's going to be a blessing for lots of people. It's going to be a frightening experience for lots of others. Okay? So this is, remember, when we, we did, we did um, Journey of the Magi, right? Same thing. Remember, this, it's a modern rendering of the Journey of the Magi. He takes this trip. And he, he makes it impossible for us not to associate birth with death. In that poem, we're asked to hold the two of them together. And remember that when he leaves to go home, um, he won't be the same. He can't go back to the world the way he was before. So here we have another one of those poems, like The Journey to Magi, Marina. It's, it's Simeon in, in an in-between state, aware of something that's put him at odds with his familiar world, okay? A song for Simeon. <clears throat> Lord, the Roman hyacinths are blooming in bowls and the winter sun creeps by the snow hills. The stubborn season has made stand. My life is light, waiting for the death wind, like a feather on the back of my hand. Eliot got this from the French poets, that he'll take something concrete like um, a feather on the back of my hand, like the, you know, the downy nature of hair or something, and describe the wind going through, which is a, a, um, a very familiar experience for most of us on a, on a night like this, walking from the car inside. But he takes an image like that without making it a metaphor and, and relating it to something more. So we're asked to feel something very ordinary and familiar, while at the same time we're aware that it's relating us to something else. My life is light waiting for the death wind like a feather on the back of my hand. Dust in sunlight and memory in corners wait for the wind that chills towards the dead land. Grant us thy peace. I have walked many years in this city, kept faith and fast, provided for the poor, have taken and given honor and ease. There went never any rejected from my door who shall remember my house where shall live my children's children when the time of sorrow is come. They will take to the goat's path and the fox's home, fleeing from the foreign faces and the foreign swords. You know that Jerusalem's gonna be occupied and taken into captivity too. Before the time of cords and scourges and lamentation, grant us thy peace. Before the stations of the mountains of desolation, before the certain hour of maternal sorrow, now at this birth season of decease, let the infant, the still unspeaking and unspoken word, grant Israel's consolation to one who has 80 years and no tomorrow. According to thy word, they shall praise thee and suffer in every generation with glory and derision. Light upon light, mounting the saint's stair, not for me the martyrdom, the ecstasy of thought and prayer, not for me the ultimate vision. Grant me thy peace. Thy peace and a sword shall pierce thy heart, thine also. I am tired with my own life and the lives of those after me. I am dying in my own death and the death of those after me. Let thy servant depart, having seen thy salvation. So. Remember this notion of um, fusing the familiar with um, the strange and sometimes dreadful because it's the new things that 
I mean, we use this phrase today, get out of my comfort zone. It's, so, it's almost too casual today, you know, but because that's so material. What Elliot's talking about for any of us is that when we're in the presence of something familiar and we know that we're in the presence of a mystery, we have no signposts, no books to read, nothing's gonna get us there, right? There's no how to do it American book. We're in, we're in the middle of a mystery and it's frightening. Um, because we know we've got to do something, we have to risk. We don't know the outcome, but that's where we are. So every one of these poems has taken us to that sort of place. Okay. Any questions or comments or before we start? Are you all following this? Is this all? I mean, you're seeing the connection between these these things. No questions or comments? Don't be shy. I'm gonna rephrase that. Don't be proud. (laughs) (laughs) Just so you know, just so you know, that's true for me too. I think, yeah, I think I I told you this, didn't, I'm not sure if I told you, when I started Berkeley, when Suzanne and I met and I was there as a junior, I transferred from a JC. I think I told you I flunked out of school and then gradually made my way back and flunked bonehead English a couple of times. And um, junior at Berkeley, I had to take a required course because I was an English major. And I I love the teacher. He's one of the inspirations to me that moved me into literature. We did a section on poetry. I did not read poetry in high school. I played basketball. That's all I did. And I didn't read growing up. I'm not exaggerating. It just was not a part of my life. But I fell in love with it then. And um, we did some poetry. We were doing Robert Frost and Hopkins. I think we did The Windhover. I'd never read poetry before. And I went to him one day. I said, what is it? It was all in English. But I looked at it, it was so confusing to me. So I, honestly, I'm not exaggerating. I said, it's like reading Latin. What he did was, he said, poetry is, how do you put it? Poetry is taking words to form phrases that form sentences that say something about human experience. <laughs> it's like a, a myth just disappeared. I mean, at least he made it seem as if I could do it, you know, that he went to put it that way. And I fell in love with it. I mean, I couldn't read it well. The first, you think the first time I read Marina, I had a clue about what he was doing? It's too hard. First time I read Gerard Manley Hopkins, I didn't know people could do that sort of thing with language. But I just was stunned that somebody could use language that way. Just a marvel. So we're all together in that. You're, <laughs> we're all together in that. Um, um, I think one of the reasons I come back to this and do what I'm doing here is because I think it's so amazing what poets do. I mean, the way they open a world for us. Um, and, and I hope everybody's not missing the connection here. They do that through words. How many of us use words that well? I mean, I certainly didn't back then. I, I work a lot at writing now. I mean, but I flunked both in English twice. Um, if we didn't have words, could we even get close to experience with mathematics for the scientists? Could math do this? It can't because math in itself is an abstraction. It's, it has to do with quantity. Words allow us to move into a concrete world like here, we're here, um, and help make us aware of another one beyond. 
I mean, literature can do that. Through words. What's the ultimate source of words? The word. The word. The logos. So the beauty of this is that it, words can do this. I mean, in one sense, it's, it's like Christ. It's, a, it's so familiar, we take it for granted. And yet what it's capable of doing is extraordinary. Extraordinary. I'm trusting you all know that or you wouldn't be here. Um, okay, let's, let's get to the alien. I want to go back to that question that I've been asking. I'm going to keep asking at the beginning of our work for a while. What was God doing before Christ came? Are there intimations? We know there are. Um, Isaiah makes intimation. I mean, prophesizes um, the coming of Christ probably more clearly than anybody. Um, is there something to learn from poets, from people outside the prophetic tradition that have something prophetic to them? I'm, I'm hoping you all see that they do because it's the works we're doing. Um, we believe that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were eternal, that they were never not there, they were never not here, they were at work. My hope here is that by looking at works before Christ came, if we can see the workings of God, Father, Son, Spirit, whichever form, that it might help us see that something's going on here that we don't see. You know, like, remember when we were at Supernatural Love, the little four-year-old girl pricks herself and um, um, so um, do these works have something to teach us? Um, my claim is that they do. Simon Weil, remember, said that the Iliad was the greatest poem about force. And I think in one respect she's right, except I disagree with her, that I don't think that's principally what it's about. You can't turn a page without seeing men use force on each other. They're killing each other. But I don't think that's what it's about. That's not its principal purpose. The principal purpose, I believe, is to show that something's going on in that poem um, that's answering this tendency in men to use force, to kill each other. Um, I quoted that line from um, Benedict where he talks about the two aspects of God, that God is the Logos, the Logos, and he's a God of love. We believe he's a Trinitarian God. Um, St. Augustine, uh, Boethius, St. Thomas, most of the fathers during the Middle Ages believed that there were traces of the Trinity in every single thing in creation. You could look at a leaf, you could look at a caterpillar, it doesn't matter what you look at, there's evidence of the Trinity, traces in everything. I'll just give you one notion, I don't want to get into it because it's too philosophic, but they all said every single thing in creation, if it's good, is known by its mode, its form, and its order. Those three things. The mode of the thing is the way in which it appears. So our mode is to be a human. A tree is to be a tree, right? An animal is to be an animal, a, you know, a leaf. Each thing is known by its mode, what it is in existence. It's also known by its form, what it does, its operation, its action. Our operations as humans are different from those of an animal or a tree or a leaf. Or, okay? And each thing has a different order, a different end or purpose. So there are traces of the Trinity in every single thing. Everything in creation is moving towards some good. I think I've used this analogy before. 
If you look at a sunflower during the day and watch it move, you'll see that it follows the course of the sun. Why? St. Thomas would say that's, that's an expression of love, <laughs> that it has an appetite for the good. That's his language. We don't use those because we live in a mathematical world, but he'd say there's nothing in creation that isn't moved towards the good of something else. A wolf, when he hunts, he's not out to, he's not out to be malicious any more than a jackal is. They're doing what they do according to nature. When they hunt down food, they, they're doing it to eat the way we do. So there's nothing in creation that doesn't show traces of the Trinity. There's an order to everything. The Logos is present in everything. The Protestant world, the fundamentalist world, has taken that away because they say nature's corrupt. So there's no Logos there. That's a sad loss. The, 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 whole, way of, the, way, the whole way of approach into mystery for us, it's through nature, right? We give ourselves, learn and find ourselves getting closer and closer to God. Take away the logos, that door's closed. Science take it, takes it away, although it implies it because um, all scientists will say everything's intelligible. Why else would they study it? And if there's an intelligibility to everything in nature, and there clearly is, then it implies um, the intelligence of a creator. Otherwise, where did that intelligibility come from? No scientist, I mean, all scientists, good scientists, will find intelligibility. Otherwise, they wouldn't be moving into it to discover its laws or purposes. So, so the point I'm making again is that the, it, this is not just a poem about force. It's, it's, in some sense, my claim is it's about the logos, although that isn't what Homer's going to call it. Putting, giving a direction and a purpose and setting a curb on this tendency towards violence, towards force. Okay? Remember, the word epic itself means epos, epic, the word, an exchanged word, a divinely spoken word. Those are some of the meanings of epos, epic. That's what an epic is, a song, singing words. And we know, we know from each one of the epics, and you'll know it when you do the Odyssey and the Aeneid, that it's a song, it's a poem. It's to be sung, it was sung. Um, that Homer is invoking Calliope, a goddess, to sing through him. So what's coming to him is a divine word with all the beauty and order that a poem, a song has, okay? The theme of the city, I'm going to come back to this next week, so I'm not going to say much about it here, but remember I read that passage when the Trojans were pressing, the, or the Greeks were pressing the Trojans to the ships, and Aias said, we have no city here to protect us. We, now we have to fight for ourselves. I'm going to read this passage later because it's so important. Hector's going to claim, I'm the one that kept off necessity from our people. So he's saying, I protected us against necessity. This is, there's a, a great irony to both of those lines because the city, as it's being presented in this book, is, is treated as if it's a protection against necessity. It protects us, it shelters us, it's where we get our life. It's, it's, it's where we get our sustenance, we take care of each other within the city. And what do we see at the end of this poem? City's destroyed. I think I did this in the, one of our first talks. Um, I talked about the first city, didn't I? Enoch is the founder of the first city. I'm going to go back there next week because I want this is major. 
The city comes into existence after um, God exiles Cain. Enoch is the founder of the first city. It comes into existence when man separates himself from God as if he can live alone. This is profound. One of the truths that Homer's showing us is there is no protection against necessity. It's what man has to deal with. At the end of this poem, Troy is going to be destroyed. And what we see is man in his hubris keeps creating these structures thinking he's going to protect himself. He doesn't need God. Here we are. And we've learned, if you're doing all the backstories, that Laomedon, who was the founder of Troy, betrayed the gods. So what the history of Troy is that it didn't give gods the place that they should. So what's happening generations later? Here we are. Where is America going to be in 50 years? I mean, I think all of us are worrying about that today. We had this great nation, and I think, I think, I hope I'm not offending anybody here, that I, it's hard to see that we're not in a decline. I mean, we're losing who we were. We cannot recover our greatness if we're not good. If we don't hold on to our attachments to goodness in God, and are they there? Are, is, is, is what's going on in our legislative bodies expressive of our love of God? Or, you know, I mean, so we see this again and again and again and again. Here it is at the very beginning of our tradition. The Iliad is about the destruction of a city, this attempt to live as if man were sufficient, um, that he had a protection against necessity. And what the whole poem is showing us is, that's not true. The theme of reading, how well do people read? Um, we've been seeing that people continue to think that they see things well, and we keep getting these prophecies from Homer and Zeus, and it makes us aware these men aren't reading well at all. They don't see what's going on or where things are going to go. They're missing it all. So this theme about how well we read our world, what kind of readers are we? Do, are we able to really see what's there? It's just a major theme of the whole work. Okay. Today, I want, to, I, just, I want to introduce three notions that I haven't touched on in, in quite the same way, but I want to throw them out because I hope it helps clarify what we're doing here. Um, what the epic gives us as a, a genre, a work, is what I would call an enlargement or expansion of our notions of time and space. It's an expansion of the way we look at things in time and space. What the epic does is shatter the veil between the physical and metaphysical realities. We see the gods interacting with men. And what we see when that veil is separated, so we see the gods interacting with men, is that we get a glimpse of final ends. What's going to happen in the next life? We know in the Iliad that there are three realms. And by the way, think about this. Because according to our, our faith, there are three realms, right? Heaven, purgatory, hell. In Homer's world, there's Olympus, the place of the gods. There's the temporal order, this place where all these fights are going on, and there's the underworld. There's the world of eternal things with the gods. There's a world of eternal things with the underworld. That's where all men will go. And there's this battle here. Um, where men engaging each other, trying to find meaning in what they do. The Russian formalist critic, a man named Mikhail Bakhtin, he's, unless you're in English, he wouldn't mean anything to you. 
Bakhtin did amazing things for the study of literature in our time. Um, he said, in some ways I think rightfully, that um, the epic takes us back to an idealized world. We enter that world through memory, through mimosine. Remember, Calliope is one of the nine muses. Um, mimosine, cosmic memory, and Zeus mated, producing those nine um, um, deities. Calliope is one, the goddess of epic poetry. It's through her that these poems are told. There's a god of history, a goddess of history in other fields. They're, they're the liberal arts, basically. He said rightly that we enter into an epic world through the memory. We go back in time to an accomplished, finished experience. So he looked at it as absolute. We enter into an idealized time. The, the novel, in contrast, this is so important. The novel, in contrast, um, keeps us in our familiar world. We don't go back in, into an idealized past through memory. Um, so according to Bakhtin, the poet enters into what he calls an idealized past, a past whose values are absolute because they're already completed. It's love of the heroic ideal, the kleos or glory to which the hero is drawn assumes from the beginning that much of our ordinary life will be left behind. Its preoccupation with the heroic blinds us to everything that is ordinary or irrelevant to its great heroic quest. Read a Jane Austen novel. Read Charles Dickens. It doesn't matter. When you enter in the modern world, you're going to be in a very familiar world. We're not in the heroic anymore. We're not in an idealized world. I mean, we can say in some ways Jane Austen's worlds are, but you know if you've read any of those novels, we're in the world as we know it. The novel is in the present. So from, according to Bartine, he thinks it's a more democratic form of expression because it, it's open-ended. It, it situates us in the present, the way we are. Whereas in the epic, we're taken to um, a previous time, this idealized time. Um, <clears throat> so if you look at, here, think about this. So if you look at most modern novels, think about Defoe or Dickens or Jane Austen or Conrad, it just doesn't matter. They're all dealing with the here and now. Interesting, if you look at Cervantes, in some sense begins the novel tradition, Cervantes is between two worlds. He's looking back at a heroic code of knights. You know, Don Quixote is this knight, attempting to do heroic deeds and making a fool of himself all the time because he's in that no place land. He belongs to, he longs for the heroism of you know, the epic world, but he's in the present in which nobody believes in that world any longer. So um, that's one way of looking at um, the epic. Um, I think Bakhtin's right in saying epic takes us back to a world in the past, but to claim that the epic is made ideal or absolute by that fact is a serious mistake. I'm gonna quarrel with him for a second here, differ. Homer takes us back to the past through memory but only to locate us squarely in history in a war that actually took place. The fact that the events which he describes took place in the past is no more a fault of the epic than it is in those modern novels in which an editor takes us back to the past. Pip in Great Expectation, Huck in Huckleberry, you can go on. Lots of them are talking about a past event. The, the real thing that distinguishes the epic from the modern novel um, is that in the epic, the veil is removed from the divine and we get a glimpse of the gods interacting with our world. 
That's absolutely at odds with the empirical world that was set in motion in the sciences, sciences with the sciences in the 16th century. So it's good to just be aware of those differences, okay? Um, I'm, I would argue that even though we're back in past, Homer's taking us to something timeless because of what he does with it. That in the Iliad, the Odyssey, and what Dante will do in Virgil, will take us back into a past, but they're gonna show us something timeless about what humans do that's as relevant today as it was then. Um, and let me just raise this question. If modern readers of Homer would doubt him because he's showing the gods, how do they handle the realism with which he treats everything else? How can, how, or put it differently, should we trust Homer when he shows the gods the way he does? And why should we? One good reason is that he's so faithful and so realistic in the way he presents battles. How can he be that realistic and be stupid you know, in showing the gods? E either he sees something and presents it accurately the way he does battles all the time, and he's aware of something going on with the divine, or we should write him all off, everything he does off. But to allow him to be realist in one sense and deny him in the other makes no sense. Homer's, we, if we accept that he's realistic when he shows the battles, we've got to ask if there isn't something we need to look at more closely in what he does with the gods. Okay? And we've talked about it a little bit. The gods divide down differently, east and west. He's showing us something about the way man relates to the divine order, what God is doing in his world. Um, <clears throat> Louise um, Eliade, um, 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 a good critic, says of history, the descriptions of the killings and the bloodshed on page after page do full justice to what Eliad calls the terror of history. He looked at history and found nothing but terror. It's impossible to read Homer without finding violence everywhere. Um, and I hope that's self-evident to everybody. You can't look anywhere in the world today and not see violence. We are the most educated people in the world and we're killing millions of babies every year, undercover. I mean, we are complicit, all of us, it's our sins, they're ours, and we're all involved in them. We put on dress clothes, we are well-mannered, we are well-educated, and we act like we're doing nothing wrong. We did it with slavery in the 19th century. The Germans did it with the Jews, you know, last century. Um, so there's violence everywhere. History is full of violence, Iliad is saying. The historical moment can never in its entirely, entirety be anything but tragic, pathetic, unjust, chaotic, as any moment that heralds the final catastrophe must um, must be. Remember, every one of the plays that we've read so far shows men struggling to answer un injustices and setting up new justice injustices in their place. T.S. Eliot said, if all time is eternal, this is from Burnt Norton, it's the first of the four quartets. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. We can't find redemption in our in time itself. If we're to have any redemption at all because we're in a fallen state, it's gonna be because somebody from outside time enters our time. Um, so time by its very nature, us in our fallen state, we're inclined to violence. What does that mean for the epic? The epic is always sung. 
One of the most important characteristics of the epic is that it is sung, it's poetry. Epics are songs, but interesting, they're never sung as celebrations. The epic song wasn't composed after the fall of Troy and then sung at banquets as the feel-good accompaniment to the drinking, eating, and probably pillaging and raping that took place in the aftermath of victory. We don't find an epic song inserted into Exodus to mark the entry of the Jewish people into the Promised Land. The epic imagination, Louise Cowan says, produces few songs of victory after conquest, tending rather to create its heroic chansons, its songs, in times of defeat, out of need rather than plenitude. The reason for this, I believe, the reasons are fairly complex. One is that the cost of war is always greater than men anticipate. They're always worse, even if we try to put a limit on them. It's hard. Men die, women are raped, homes are destroyed. For what? When we begin the Odyssey, when we complete the, the Iliad story, we're going to have some sense of the devastations of war, its effects, because what are we going to find? Troy's destroyed, women are enslaved, the men have been away for nine years. Who is present to raise the boys into manhood? This is not a small issue for me. I hope it isn't for you. The men are gone. Who's raising the boys? Who's helping the, the mother? I mean, it's not to take anything away from Penelope, but when a, when a young boy does not have a man around, what's going to happen? And that's, it's more and more true for us. The men are away for nine and a half years. Odysseus and his men are going to be away for 20 years. What happens to young kids when the, when the fathers are around? What we see in Odysseus's home is it's almost destroyed. Um, the suitors, men, are wrecking violence on it. Take men out of the cut. It's just got to be careful because I don't want to get started. Take men out of the picture and things are not going to look good. Remember, we've, I've been saying for the last month now, men are scoundrels in all these places. I hope you hear me. They're scoundrels, but I'm going to say we still need them. I hope that's... Um, when we begin the Odyssey, we'll give in some sense of what happens back home when men are away at war. Homes go to hell. Sons grow without fathers. Wives struggle to be faithful. For what? To get Helen back? Oh, God. Is the cost worth it? Or is there something more? A victory celebration may take place, but is the meaning of that victory the same one that the poet has on his mind when he composes his song? I'm suggesting here that Homer's vision goes much deeper than that of the men and the causes for which they were fighting. They see one thing, all the men in the battlefield, Diomedes, Odysseus, all of them, Agamemnon, they all see one thing. Are they seeing what Homer's going to show us by the end of this story? I'm going to say no. I, mean, I can't tell you till we get there, but I'm going to say, he's showing us something about a battle that most men are not going to, and, and think about those men coming home with all of their wounds, and that's what the Odyssey is going to show us when we get there. What is it that Homer sees that would make him want to sing a song in the face of so much suffering and carnage? Why would a man sing a song, put, put something as violent as war to the beauty and harmony of a song? This is an epic. It's a song. Um, I'm saying um, there's a quality of lament to this song. I think there's also buried a quality of affirmation that there is something good to come out of this. What is it? We can't, when we get to the end, um, okay. 
So I just want to introduce those, those three qualities we've been talking about. There's an enlargement of time and space. We enter into a metaphysical dimension. The veil's pulled back, and we see the divine interacting with men. By nature, the, the epic tends to be tragic. It tends to be located in history. Um, and finally, it's a song. Something is going on um, that's worth singing about. What is that in, in, in the Iliad? Okay. Let me stop. I want to I go through the readings now. I want to pick up where we left off because we've got some really important things going on here. But let me stop. Any, any question about any of that? Not be doing something right again. <laughs> Did you have something? doing this. Stephanie, you come back here. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm going to do this anyway. God, I hate doing this, but should I do this? I'm going to do it. Um, you know that when Achilles goes back into the war, he goes back knowing he's going to die. So um, we don't see him die in the poem. We're going to see Hector die. Achilles won't. So I, I, I would describe the poem as a heroic celebration of Achilles and what he does. And we're going to get to that in a second. <clears throat> but he's going to die. I'm going to argue. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'm not comfortable doing this. But he's going to die. Um, he goes back into the poem, the war, knowing he's going to die. So the ultimate end for Achilles is death. We don't see him die but it's going to be, we know he's giving himself. And I'm going to argue that he can only do what he does. He can only accomplish what he does because he accepts his death. So from one perspective, you have to say, what a bleak poem. There's no hope at all. This guy's going to die. My question, I don't want to answer it, but I, let me throw it out because you put it in terms of hope. Our hope rests on Christ's death and his resurrection. Too often in our world, we think of hope as, I hope I can have this house and a nice comfortable car. And you know, at the center of our faith is our awareness that at, we believe that it isn't until we die and are reborn that we will know life at all because until we, don't, we, until we do, we're sort of stuck in our sins or disorders. So death seemed to be a, a formidable, bleak, thing to be avoided. It's the last thing anybody would associate with hope. What, I'm, what I hope to show when we get there, and we're going to get close to today, is something happens to Achilles when he accepts his death, and it utterly changes everything. So, so, hold, so in one sense, huh? Right. Right. Yep. Right. Right. So in one sense, he's, a, he's approaching Christ. For a man to renounce his life, to give up everything. I, I'm going to wait there, because I, I, I'm already giving away more than I wanted. But it's just, I mean, you, you, you raised a really good question. And 
usually when people think about death, they look at it in awful terms. Um, but, I mean, if you set it next to Christ, it, it's amazing to me that the change that Achilles undergoes takes place at the moment that he accepts his own death. Um, so in some ways, he seems to be pointing, Homer seems to be showing us something that almost nobody else in this book can see. None of the men do. How many readers do? Anyway, let's, let's, let's go there, because it's, it's, we're going to get exactly there. <clears throat> Turn to um, page 342, book 16, line 330. 16, 330, page, oh, sorry, 342, 342. You remember that last week when we stopped, um, the Trojans um, were pushing the Achaeans to the ships. Hector was asking for fire because you're ready to set the ships on fire. And Patroclus said, heartless man, if you're not going to come in, heartless, pitiless man, um, you, you know, <laughs> I've got to come back to pity because it's, it's too big a thing. But... He says, pity this man. If you'd only come back, we wouldn't be here. He's not going to go back into the war, but he says to Patroclus, put on my armor, you can go back. And, but he puts one condition on him. He says, do not go to the wall. That honor is reserved for me. You all remember that. So um, Patroclus enters the war, and he, um, he's coming across um, Sarpedon, who is one of the great Trojan warriors. Um, Hector, Aeneas, Sarpedon are the, are the greatest of the Trojan warriors. On page 342, Zeus is looking on at what's about to happen. And it's a, Helen's, that's, she's one of the ones not here, and I'm sorry she isn't for her to hear this. Um, because Zeus has to contemplate something here. So it's another example that things aren't determined, that men have free will. And the gods have to struggle with those same choices. He says at the top of 342, Ah me, that it's destined that the dear son of men, Sarpedon, must go down under the hands of Minoitus' son, Patroclus. The heart in my breast is balanced between two ways as I ponder, whether I should snatch him out of the sorrowful battle or beat him under. Hera scolds him, because you know she's pulling for the Achaeans. Um, um, down a few lines, no, but if he's dear to you and your heart mourns for him, then let him be and let him go down under the strong encounter underneath the hands of Patroclus. But after the soul and the years of his life have left him, then send death to carry him away and sleep who is painless until they come with him to the countryside of broad Lycia, where his brothers and countrymen shall give him due burial with tomb and gravestone. Such is the privilege of those who have perished. She spoke, nor did the father of gods and his men disobey her, Yet he wept tears of blood that fell to the ground for the sake of his beloved son, whom now Patroclus was presently to kill. Does that remind you of anything? Hmm? No? My goodness. That doesn't remind you of God with Christ? And I mean, remember it was Christ who wept tears of blood in the garden 
Um, it, this is so amazing. Here is just another indication of some intuition that Homer had of a divine wound. Zeus is weeping because he knows he's going to lose his son. It reminds me of, uh, of uh, Abraham, too, with Isaac not wanting to you know, give up his son. The two meet and um, Sarpedon wounds him fatally. And on page 344, um, Glaucos um, knows he's dying. This is just it's sort of amazing. On 344, um, Glaucos is looking on his dearest friend, Sarpedon. He says, he spoke in prayer for him who strikes from afar, Apollo. Hear me, my Lord. You are somewhere in the rich Lycian countryside or here in Troy. Wherever you are, you can listen to a man in pain. And now this pain has descended upon me. For see, I have this strong wound in me and my arms on both sides is driven with sharp pains about. My blood is not able to dry and stop running. My shoulder is aching beneath it. I cannot hold my spear up steady. I cannot go forward to fight against the enemy. And the best of men is perished, Sarpedon, son of Zeus, who will not stand by his children. He's praying that he can help a friend when he's helpless to do anything. Apollo will go to um, um, Sarpedon and heal him for a minute, I mean, to take away his pain. He, won't, he can't stop him from dying, but he relieves him of his pain. We know that. We believe those things happen in our lives. Um, at that point, the, the men are going to fight over the body and armor of Sarpedon because he's one of the greatest of the Trojans. Um, on page 345, in the middle of the page, he spoke and they likewise grew furious in their defense and when they on either side had made mass of their battalions, Trojans and Lycians, Myrbidans and Achaeans, they clashed together in battle over the perished body, howling terribly with a high crash of the men. Patroclus is on a rage. This is Sarpedon's humiliation. They're just trashing over his body. They want to get him and his armor. You know what happens at this point. They're going to struggle over Sarpedon's body. And Patroclus is going to, on page 348 at the bottom, but Patroclus with a loud shout, he goes on in a fury, besotted. Had he only kept the command of Pilates, he might have got clear away from the evil spirit of black death. <coughs> he's too overcome by pity. He's too overcome by rage. He can't stop himself now. He goes on. So the men will continue their fight over Sarpedon. Um, you know that uh, Patroclus goes to the wall and he's going to be killed. <coughs> book 18 or 17, the entire book is, describes a battle over Patroclus' body. If you're reading attentively, you know you can't read two pages without coming across 20 battles. I mean, they, they just nonstop. This whole chapter is devoted to one battle. That's how important it is. It's, it's a battle over Patroclus, and it's a battle for Achilles' armor. Um, I don't want to go on through the whole thing, but take, turn to piece 357. Um, one line one twenty five. Hmm? Sorry. You're right. So, sure. Sorry. I, on page three fifty seven, book seventeen, line one twenty or so. Uh, 
Menelaus is ashamed of himself because if he, um, if he leaves the armor of Patroclus, it will be a shame to the whole Achaean people because he is Achilles' dearest friend and he's wearing his armor. But he can't protect the body on his own. He um, calls for help. Hector comes up and he, he wants to take this armor. About line 120. This way, Aias, we must make for fallen Patroclus to try if we can carry back to Achilles the body which is naked. Hector of the shining helm has taken his armor. So he spake and started the spirit in valiant Aias, who strode among the champions, fair-haired Menelaus with him. But Hector, when he had stripped from Patroclus the glorious armor, dragged at him, meaning to cut his head from his shoulders with his sharp run and give it to the dogs. Now hold on to this, um, hold on to this, okay? Um, men kill each other all the time. It's one thing to kill a man, it's another thing to desecrate his body, to chop its head off. Um, so this is, and I, to my recollection, this is, I can't remember this occurring, I think maybe one other time. Um, but this is Hector's response to Patroclus' body. Hold on to that, because when we get to the Odyssey, and even more especially when we get to the um, Aeneid, Aeneid, Turnus, the, the man that Aeneas is going to fight, puts his foot on the body of a man and does something with him. Watch what Aeneas does when he kills a man. So the way you treat a person, even when he's dead, says something about who you are. Okay? Um, um, turn to line 183, page... What is it, 359? Going over to 358 first on um, 17, about line 140 or so. Um, remember, Glaucon, Glaucus was Sarpedon's dearest friend. And he's been trying to protect Sarpedon's body um, about line 140 or so. Glaucus, lord of Lycian men, the son of Hippolochus, looked at Hector scowling and laid a harsh word on him. God, I'm so sorry, Helm's not here. Hector, splendor to look at, you come far short in your finding. That fame of yours, high as it is, belongs to a runner. Take thought now how to hold fast your town, your citadel, by yourself with those your people who were born in Italy. Remember, he said, all I need is my family. With just my family, we can defeat all of you. That sense of... The family means that much to him. Take thought now how to hold fast your town, your citadel by yourself with those your people who were born in Ilion. Since no Lycian will go, he says, you've abandoned the men who are here to protect you. How then, O oh hard-hearted, shall you save a worse man in all your company when you have abandoned Sarpedon, your guest friend and own companion, to be the spoil of prey in the archive? So instead of trying to protect Sarpedon's body, Hector has gone on. What attracted him? Achilles' armor. Um, over on um, the next page, about line 180 or so. So speaking, he called afar the great voice of the Trojans, Trojans, Lycians, Dardanians who fight. Be men, remember your furious valor while I'm putting on the beautiful armor of blameless Achilles, which I stripped from Patroclus. So you guys fight while I put this on. Um, so they're fighting. He stood apart from the sorrowful fighting and changed his armor and gave what he had worn to fighting Trojans to carry to sacred Ilion and himself put on the armor immortal of Peleid, Achilles, which the Iranian gods had given him. 
Okay. Um, 425, line 425. As they continue to fight over Patroclus' body, Hector sees Achilles' horses and wants them. Page 365, about line 420. Such in turn would be the cry of some high-hearted Trojan, O friends, though it be destined for all of us to be killed here over this man, still none of us must give ground in the fighting. Thus a man would speak and stir the spirit in each one of his fellowships, so they fought on. And the iron tumult went up to the brazen sky through the barren bright air. But the horses of Achilles, Achilles, standing apart from the battle, wept as they had done since they'd heard how their charioteer had fallen in the dust at the hands of murderous Hector. Go down. They were unwilling to go back to the whole wide passage of Helle and the ships or back into the fighting after the Achaeans, but still as stands a grave monument which is set over the mound tomb of a dead man or lady. This is the top of page 366, about line 435. They stood there, holding motionless in its place the fair wrought chariot, leaning their heads along the ground, and warm tears were running earthward from underneath. Zeus looks at them and says, poor wretcheds. They don't want to go back without Achilles. When Achilles finally puts on his armor later, the horses are actually going to prophesize to him. Just hold on. So this may seem silly or far-fetched, but I think it's Homer's way of showing. Not just, who is the, Balaam's ass in the Bible? Was it he who spoke, the ass who spoke? Wasn't it? Yeah. Homer is seeing this powerful attachment between subhuman beings and their master, Achilles, and here Patroclus. Um, book 17 ends with Manolaus um, standing or sending Antilochus to get Achilles. I don't want to look at this, but this is that point, remember, um, um, where we, just about where we um, ended last time, when um, um, Antilochus comes and lets Achilles know that Patroclus has died. Thetis hears, and she begins that, that weeping, that threnody, and um, Achilles goes outside of ships and yet lets out that yell, and um, um, Trojans are routed. They're terrified at his voice, and it's at that point that they'll go back to the city. And I just want to read a couple of passages here because we're getting to something really crucial. Um, chapter 18, line 255. When the chariots get routed, they tumble. Remember, Achilles is described as having this nimbus, this flame emanating from around his head. And he sets up this terror in the people around him. And um, the Trojans are shaking, so they're fleeing back to the city. Polydamus says this, top of page 382. Now take careful thought, dear friends, for I myself urge you to go back into the city and not wait for the divine dawn. Go down, but now I terribly dread the swift-footed son of Peleus. So violent is the valor in him, he will not be willing to stay here in the plain. So he's saying, go back into the town. Protection. Remember, the, remember the, this theme of the city and necessity or death. He's saying, get away. Hector says at the bottom of page 382 about line 285, again, 
Polydamus has warned him several times. Hector's never listened. Polydamus, these things that you argue please me no longer when you tell us to go back again to be cooped up in the city. Have you not had all your glut of being fenced in our outworks? He says it, it takes, um, he takes no pleasure, so they're going to camp out on the field and not go into the city. Um, now, here's where something important happens. Go on over to um, page... Three eighty-six. It's chapter eighteen, line four twenty-five. Thetis, Achilles's mother, goes to Hephaestus, who's the god of craft. He's the one who makes things, and she asks him to make Achilles a new set of armor. She says, in about line four twenty-five or so. If I stood there among all the goddesses on Olympus, one who in her heart has endured so many grim sorrows as the grief Zeus, son of Cronos, has given me beyond others. She reminds him, and we know that the... Now here's where I want to go, so hold on to this because I need to put a couple of things together here. You know that the, the shield, the armor that Achilles had, was the armor that was given to his mother when she was forced to marry a human. It was a, an attempt to try to restore some honor. So she's an image of something divine that's been wounded. Something divine, been wounded and dishonored. So Homer has the sense of some wound or dishonor in the divine order. Thetis bears it. That was, the, that was the armor that Achilles used. That was the armor that Patroclus wanted and that Hector wanted. And now Hector has it, okay? Now she goes to Hephaestus and says, make me a new set of armor, okay? Um, and he does, going over to page 388, about line 480. First of all, he forged a shield that was huge, go down. He made the earth upon it, and the sky, the sea, go down. On it he wrought in all their beauty the two cities of mortal men. So just to begin, on the shield, so far, there's everything. The earth, the sky, the ocean, and the two cities of men, what we could call the city of justice, and the city of war. Those are the two cities of man. And according to Homer, they're eternal. Right? By the way, has anything changed? <laughs> we are forever deliberating about questions of justice and we are forever going to war. Um, on it wrought in all their beauty two cities of mortal men. There were marriages in one, festivals. Um, the people were go down. The people were assembled in the marketplace where a quarrel had arisen between two men. They're disputing a legal matter. In the other city, go down at the bottom, about line 509. But around the other city were lying two forces of armed men shining in their war gear, quarreling over an issue. It's exactly what the Iliad's about. So on the on the shield are sky, earth, two cities of men. Um, he shows the land being plowed, an agrarian land. He, um, line um, 550. He made on it the precinct, precinct of a king where the laborers were reaping with sharp reaping hooks in their hands. So a whole agrarian world is brought into view. He made on it a great vineyard, heavy with clusters, all of nature. He made on it a herd of horn straight oxen, 
animals. Go on over, um, page 391, about line 590. Um, the sheep flocks and the renowned smith of the strong arms, Hephaestus, made elaborate on it a dancing floor like that which once in the wide spaces of uh, Gnosos, the Adelos built for Ariadne of the lovely tresses. Young men and women, romance, where romance takes place. He made on it the great strength of the ocean river, which ran, ran around the uttermost rim of the shield. Hold on. That means everything is on the shield, all of creation, and it's surrounded by the ocean, and the ocean, let's see, the ocean is the boundary that marks the known world. That just symbolically marks the extent to which men can know. Whatever is beyond that is unknowable. So there's nothing in the created world that isn't on that shield, okay? This is his new armor. Going over the very first page of chapter 19. She gets the shield, the new armor made for Achilles. She puts it down. This is the beginning of 19. My child now, though we grieve for him, we must let this man lie dead in the way he first killed was killed through the gods designing, except rather for me the glorious arms of Hephaestus, so splendid and such as no man has ever worn on his shoulder. The goddess spoke so, set down the armor on the ground before Achilles and all its elaborations clasped loudly. Trembling took hold of the mermaids. None had the courage to look straight at it. They were afraid of it. Only Achilles looked at it. And as he looked, the anger came harder on him. Okay. Now, I want to put two things together. Um, go on to 19, line 55. The Greeks hold an assembly. This is the first time the Greeks have been in assembly since the opening when Achilles and Agamemnon quarreled. And you know that Achilles withdrew from the war. So this is the first time the men come together Achilles already told his mother, she asked him to, to make his peace with Agamemnon, the king. He says, um, about um, line 60 or so, page 393, Son of Atreus, was this after all the better way for both, for you and me, that we, for all our hearts' sorrow, quarreled together for the sake of a girl and soul-perishing hatred? Indirectly, this shows the power that women have. People can laugh at all. The beauty of women is, is that kind of a power for man. This was a quarrel about a woman. Okay. Um, Helen first, and then Bryces and Chryseis. Okay. And you know that in, in the rankings of booty, I mean, that's what drive men. They want booty. It shows who they are. Women are at the top of it. So women are objects. They're the highest thing. They, they arouse the strongest desires in men. This was the better way for, for a woman that we did this. I wish Artemis had killed her beside the ships with an arrow on that day when I destroyed um, Lernessos and took her. Going, going over, line 65. Now I'm making an end of my anger. It does not become me unrelentingly to rage on. Come then, the more quickly drive on the flowing Herodokines into the fighting so that I may go up against the Trojans. Let's go back into battle, united. 
Agamemnon stands up and he says, about line 75, fighting men and friends of Danans, henchmen of Ares, it's well to listen to the speaker. It's not becoming to break in on him. This will be hard for him, though um, he be able. How among the great murmur of people shall anyone listen or speak either? A man, though he speak very clearly, is baffled. I shall address the son of Peleus, yet all you other Argives listen also and give my word careful attention. This is the word the Achaeans have spoken often against me and found fault with me in it. Yet I'm not responsible, but Zeus is, and destiny, and Irenes, the mist walking who in assembly caught my heart in the savage delusion. On that day, I, I myself stripped from him the prize of Achilles. Yet what could I do? It's the God who accomplishes all things. Delusion is the, and he goes on. Now just for a moment, go back to chapter 18, line 80. This is about line 80 or so. He's grieving with his mother, Thetis, and he says, by what pleasure is this to me since my dear companion has perished? Patroclus, whom I love beyond all other companions as well as my own life, I've lost him, and Hector, who killed him, has stripped away that gigantic armor, a wonder to look on and splendid, which the gods gave Peleus a glorious present on the day they drove you to the marriage bed of mortal. He says, um, at this point, I accept my death, she says about line 95, then I must lose you soon, my child, by what you're saying, since it's decreed your death must come soon after Hector's. And deeply disturbed, Achilles of the swift feet answered her, I must die soon then, since I was not to stand by my companions. Now here's, I just, everybody take a close look at this. And now, um, I must die soon, since I was not to stand by my companions when he, when he was killed. And now far away from the land of his fathers, he has perished, and lack my fighting strength to defend him. Now, since I'm not going back to the beloved land of my father, since I was no light of safety to Patroclus, nor to any other companions, who in their numbers went down before glorious Hector, but sit here beside my ships, a useless weight on the good land, I, who am such as no other of the bronze-armored Achaeans in battle, though there are others also better in counsel, why I wish that strife would vanish away from among gods and mortals in Gaul, which makes a man grow angry for all his great mind, that gall of anger. Um, still, he says, let it be. Okay, let's stop. I've got a couple of questions here. This is a major turning point in the book. Um, next week, we're going to look at the body, the city, and the parousia. Those are going to be the themes I want to cover. But this marks a turn. Uh, the other thing that's going to happen that I should have put up there, put up psychomachia. Psycho, soul, machia, war, in the Greek. When the gods enter the battle, when the gods enter the battle, here, listen, everybody, this is crucial. Zeus is going to finally say, because he said for the greater part of the book, do not go into that war. He doesn't keep teasing, particularly Hera. Um, do not go into the battle. When Achilles gets his armor, he's ready to go into the battle. When he returns, when he returns, the gods are allowed to go back. When they go back into the battle, Homer describes it like there's this dislocation in the earth. 
Graves open. It's a little bit like the crucifixion. Graves open. Spirits from the dead come up. The gods fight each other. It's a psychomachia. It's a war of the spirit. Something happens when he goes back into battle. And we know that when he goes back into the battle, nobody's going to be able to stop him. He's eventually going to get to Hector, and the, the book will conclude with a, um, a battle between Achilles and Hector. So just looking forward. My question here is, is this. Um, what's the difference between the two shields? Really important, because once he puts this armor on, nobody can stop it. And remember, um, when, when um, Homer's describing it, he puts the entire world on the shield. That's exactly what his enemies are going to be looking at. And it says when Thetis drops it, nobody could look at it. Nobody could look at it. So that's what he's going to present to the world. And nobody's going to be able to stop him. So first question, I've got a series of questions I want to put to you here. What's the difference between the two shields, the two sets of armor? Why can't people look at Achilles' shield? It's what all of his enemies are going to have to face. What's the difference between Achilles and Agamemnon at this moment? When Achilles goes back into the war. This is the first time they've met since the beginning when the quarrel divided them. Achilles will go back into the battle. Nobody will be able to defeat him. What happened to him? What change took place in him that makes him invulnerable? undefeatable when he goes back into the battle. Something happens that makes it possible for him to defeat Hector for the first time in nine and a half years. So it's going to bring this battle to an end. People have been killing each other. My own, you've already heard me. I don't buy the argument that Achilles should have, gone, you know, should have stayed in the battle. He should have done what he did. The cost of it was heavy. But if he hadn't, this battle would have gone on for another nine and a half. There's no reason to suppose it would have stopped. I mean, Homer's pretty clear. But nine, nine and a half means something's about to happen. What is it that happens here? Okay. What makes it possible for him to defeat Hector finally when he couldn't defeat him for nine and a half years? You all see how important this is. A, a, a serious turn is taking place right now. What's happening? Okay, so let me take those questions up, can I, just for a few minutes. Heavy stuff, I hope. Any thoughts on what, how the two shields are different, why it matters, or the two sets of armor? Say it, it's a what transfer? You say it's it again? A it's a transfiguration. He's a completely different man going into battle the second time. How and why? He is. I think he's no longer focused on his own glory. He goes back into battle to. For Patroclus and his, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure that he's completely free of 
recognizing honor because I've got, I've got to go back and look now because of your comment, and I, I will, but if you go back to that scene that I just took us to a minute ago when he's speaking with his mother and acknowledging that he's going to die, and she says, I, I won't see you again. Um, it, it seems to me, he says, and now I will go on to win you know, the honor, but, but it, it doesn't, I don't, I don't want to beg the question because the question is, is it a different kind of honor you know, from what it was at the beginning? Um, it is, has, our has his understanding of honor, has our understanding, has Homer's understanding of what's going on in this moment different from what it is for the men for most of the book? Yeah. Um, yes, and or, is it the whole of it that none of the men can see? Take Sarpon and Glaucus, they're going to go back to Lycia and, you know, to, to, um, a life the people honored them, gave them meats and food, and um, all of the men would go back to the life they had before. If you look at Achilles' shield with everything on it, is the life that any one of those men would return to equal to the whole of that shield. No, I don't hard. think, so the, 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 the real, I mean, one of the questions I've got is what is that whole that is greater than any part that any man struggles for? Because there's something pretty amazing about that shield. Any other comments about the difference between the, the set that he got from his mother that carried a wound on it, you know, from the gods. She was dishonored as, a, as an immortal. And the shield that Hephaestus has just made for Achilles is all about honor. The whole thing is about Cleos, honor. What's... Yeah. Can you flesh that out at all, Mary? Why does that matter? Or what's the what are the implications of it? Well, it just seems to me that with his own set of armor, Achilles has the confidence. He knows his destiny. So he's going all out. And it's him. Yeah, he knows that this is what he's supposed to yeah. do. It's interesting too, I mean, there's an inheritance he got from his mom. This is completely new. It's original to him. Yeah, yep, exactly. And the, one of the ironies is Patroclus puts that here. I mean, I, this is, this is so, so profound, I think. Um, Achilles was given the help of the immortals by the help he got, the armor he got from his mom. She's immortal, so he had divine help in that, and it was greater than anything he got from anybody else or anything the other warriors had, but it was still from her. Um, he gets this made for himself as if there's something original in him, 
When Hector, when Patroclus put on Achilles' shield or armor, and in a sense tried to be like him, he died. When Hector put on his armor, he will die. When men try to be something they're not, when they don't accept their nature for what it is, not even Hector, two of the passages that I wanted to read today, I'll be sure to read it because they're two, twice in this book, twice, I should read it, twice in this book, Hector says, oh, if I could only be as the immortals all the days of my life. Twice he says, I want to be like God. That is, there's an implicit rejection of his human limitations, who he is. He wants to be somebody he's not. He tries to be like Achilles, what happens? Patroclus tries to be like him for a good reason. He try, wants to scare people off. Homer is saying there's something original to each person. We're all human. We all have different talents. Um, there's something seriously wrong in trying to be somebody we're not. You know? And each time somebody does this in this book, they suffer. That's one. Um, Two is that it's a made original, I mean, for him. And it represents a wholeness that we don't have any sense of in that earlier set of armor. That is that in somehow, um, it speaks more directly of him. I thought the way you put it was really good. Who he is, not somebody else. And when it does, it, it seems as if it makes him more whole and closer to the gods, more complete than if he were to do all these other things that we're seeing in the other men. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I want to I want to stay with that because I just that to me is the yeah. Go ahead, Bob. Yes, yes, yep, yep. Is everybody clear on the difference between Achilles and Agamemnon? Agamemnon says, <laughs> I didn't put it. Zeus is responsible. You know, people today can say horoscopes. It's this. Or environment. My parents. You know, I mean, all the deterministic things we get today. It was because of this. <laughs> this is so centrally about human responsibility. So fundamentally about free will and responsibility. Achilles is the... So Agamemnon says, the gods made me do it. I was tricked. Wait, can I, I'm sorry. I hate these glasses. God. Sorry. Go back to that. Where? What line was that? Can somebody? It's um, fifty-five in line nine or chapter nineteen. Yep. On that line, it's about nineteen line seventy-five following. But he says. This is the word the Achaeans have spoken often against me and found fault with me, yet I'm not responsible, but Zeus is and destiny. Are. That is, that's modern determinism, that's science, that's horoscopes. There is nothing Homer didn't cover there. I'm not responsible. These things. Achilles, and I read that passage deliberately. Achilles is the one, go back to 18, line 80. 
I must die soon, he said, far away from the land. Now, this is um, about 18, line 100 or so. Now, since I'm not going back to the beloved land of my father, since I was no light of safety to Patroclus, nor to my companions, when the numbers went down, but sit here beside my ships, a useless weight on the good land, I whom am such as no other of the bronze armor. That is, I had, it's Christ giving the talents. Here, here, four, two, whatever they are, for any other, whatever. He's saying, I let everybody down. I let everybody down, and most especially Patroclus. I was not there. He's the only man in this book, the only individual in this book, who takes responsibility for a failure. Now here's my question. Why did that matter? Why is that so important? How would that change a man? Because what we're going to see in the next scene is he goes back into battle. Nobody's going to be able to touch him. Why not? Why? Go, you go ahead. Let me get darker. I'm darker than you guys are. You're, you're, no, you're good. I'm not. What happens when a man goes in front of an AA association and says, hi, I'm Robert. I'm an alcoholic or whatever it is. What happens in that moment? It frees you. Why? You don't have anything to hide anymore. Once you admit your faults, what's there, what's there to be afraid of? So long as we stand behind this thing that I'm this person and we don't acknowledge whatever our failings are, we're always afraid of them, always. They, they partly cripple. When we acknowledge our faults, what's there to be afraid of? But by the way, this is in the um, Murder of the Cathedral book that we're reading at St. Francis. Thomas Beckett reaches a point where, where, the, where the, pre God, the priest trying to get him out of there, and he's saying, stop it, stop it, stop it. He's, how does he put it? Um, how does he put it? The point, yeah, the, the point that he's making is they're saying, you're in danger. He's saying, my will is good. I'm going to die. I'm not in danger. The danger for him is if he didn't make his will good. So long as it is, he has nothing to be afraid of. If he dies, he dies. He's okay. When a man accepts his faults, when he openly admits them, it's a freeing moment because he no longer has anything to be afraid of. Then who's going to touch him? What can anybody use against him? What, what can any, and moreover, if you take the shield that is original to him, that is an expression of some divine link between him and the gods, I mean, Hephaestus through his mother made this, it's original to him, it's whole, it's the way he stands to the whole of the universe, Homer is showing us that when a man stands to the whole of his world and he takes responsibility for what he does, there's nothing any longer to be afraid of. So what we're, it, whoever you, conversion, I think, was it Bob? This is really a moment of a, it's a conversion, it's a turning. When he goes back into the war, and the interesting thing is when he goes back into the war, the gods go back. 
There's this dislocation in nature. It's so correspond, it's so similar to what happens during the crucifixion. When you die, what's there to be afraid of losing? What's motivated all the men in this battle for the last nine and a half years? Booty. Yeah. Your, your dignity, your honor depends on wealth, power, possessions, and you accumulate them. And what's the good of them? They're, they're all dying. Achilles, remember, book nine, Achilles reaches that point where he says, I, Agamemnon offers him all that booty. He says, such, such, such honor is the thing I need not. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. That's the beginning of his turn. Right now we're watching a man who has openly acknowledged his fault. The turn's complete. He's going back into the battle. Um, it'll be a different man from this point on. What's his belief after death? What's his belief after death? I mean, it sounds like you know, he's, he's confessed his failures. Admitted them, yeah. Yeah. It's like confessing your sins yeah. and you're ready to, you know, confessed your sins. Yeah. You, right. Where, what's his belief in afterlife? Yeah. He confessed his failures and he's no longer fighting for his own honor, but to right things. Yeah. I, that, I have a hard time with not, no longer fighting. I just, I'm going to go back and read some passages to, just to see what he says about that. But the, the, short, the direct answer to your question is, and I want to take it up next week because we'll look at it. Um, um, there will be a funeral. Um, um, funeral games will be held in honor of Patroclus. And during that period, um, Patroclus is going to visit Achilles, come to him in his sleep, in a dream. And Patroclus will say, bury me. I mean, do this because he can't go into the next line. There is no heaven in the Homeric world. There's the underworld, the underworld period. That's where everybody goes. In the underworld, it's pretty, it's pretty simple. It's either um, the, um, the blessed, the fields of the blessed and the rest of everybody else in something close to Tartars. As we move through, when we get to the Odyssey, Odysseus is gonna visit the underworld and we're gonna see that the underworld is much more differentiated. But basically it's this, I mean, here's the giveaway. When Patroclus comes to him in his, in his sleep, he says, um, how does he or Achilles says of him, God, I, my mind is, my memory, something like um, what, what, what he recognizes in that moment is that in the, what makes a person dead in the underworld, in the Greek world, is the loss of their bodies. What remains is a spirit, and so long as they're without that spirit, they're gibbering idiots. It's a lifeless condition. So it's not hell the way we know it, but it's, it's, the, it's the Homeric, the ancient ways way of acknowledging. This is sort of extraordinary. They realize how important the body is, that we are, we're not angels, we're not gods, we're human. And without our bodies, we're not alive. And to go into the other world and to be bodiless is in some way to, he describes it as being like a gibbering idiot. We're actually going to go there in the Odyssey because Odysseus has to go to the underworld before he can go home. Um, but it's nothing like Hemet, heaven, or hell as we know it. 
they're the Elysian fields where the blessed go, the, the virtuous people, and the rest. Um, um, let's stop. Um, this is the turning point. Achilles is going to go back into the war. This is the point at which everything breaks out. The gods are going to go back into the war. They're going to fight among themselves. Here's what I would ask. When you, when you read, because it's only the last few chapters now, pay attention to the gods and who fights against whom because it says something about East and West. There are different gods at issue here and who wins and why. What's emerging in the West right now? What's emerging? We're watching a man become more fully human by acknowledging his failings, taking responsibility for himself. Agamemnon doesn't, he's the king. Um, I don't know of anybody else in the book who's as honest as Achilles is about his failings. And when he, when he does that, he becomes this remarkable human being. It's a little bit like the saints, all of whom, I mean, my understanding is most of them reach a point where they, even as they go towards their death, you know, the closer, in fact, um, Bishop Barron put it this way, the closer you get to the, he, he talks about our sins as like marks on a window. You know, when the light comes in, they're more apparent. The closer you get to the light, the more apparent those sins are. So sainthood calls the saints closer and closer to their sinfulness, paradoxically. And, and when they acknowledge them, they, they do these rare things. So Homer is very close in so many ways um, to something going on in nature that Christ had to be aware of. Um, he created it. He knew it before he ever entered it. And then he entered it. So what is Homer showing us about all these things that are human nature, the, the difference between Agamemnon and Achilles, the difference between East and West, and what happens in this moment when you acknowledge your failings. And, okay? Some really deep things are going on here as we move to the end. We will finish up the Iliad next week, okay? And then we'll start the Odyssey.